All right, all right, everybody. Welcome to Colossae Sherwood. Super glad. It's fun for me to hear all the conversations going on. Um, glad that you guys are making some connections, getting to know um, one another. If we haven't met, I'm Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Colossae Sherwood. Glad you're with us this morning. Um, and as we get started, uh, just wanted to pray for us, just because I feel like oftentimes I just get up and go and just sense today that I need to pray with you guys for what we're uh, going to hear from the Lord today. So Jesus, thanks that we get to uh, be a family. Thanks that we get to be a part of your work here in Sherwood. Ask that your spirit would give all of us ears to hear what you have to say today and that we'd live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, but yes, if this is your new, if you're new to Colossae, I would love to get to know you. Um, please come up and say hi uh, at the community table afterwards. We'd just love to get some time to know you and your story and grab a cup of coffee sometime and just connect that way. But uh, very cool, we're in the second section of the Gospel of Luke. We're slowly trudging through. If I were running a marathon, this is probably how I'd do it, nice and slow, be done in eight months. So that's what we're going to keep going for. So we're going to be in the second section. The first section, we've, and we, we do this because we just, we want to make sure that we don't miss the forest as we're in the midst of the trees. We want to make sure that we know the big outline of what Luke is doing, what he's trying to accomplish. And so that first section, the coming Messiah section, really deals with the expectations of Messiah and his kingdom. Now, we look back at the Old Testament and know that Jesus is the Messiah, but for them, they're looking for the Messiah figure. And so you have these prophecies and Gabriel coming and telling Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary about what God is doing in the midst of their world. And it's very, very exciting. And the big point of that section is that it anchors Jesus to the Old Testament. We see that at the very end of chapter 3 where there's this genealogy of names that none of us can pronounce, but essentially that's where Jesus is from. And to know that those names link back to people, which link back to covenants that God has made with his people to show that God has been faithful throughout the Old Testament so that Jesus would be the Messiah. Now we're in the Messianic ministry and we've gone through a couple of things. We've seen Jesus get tempted. We've seen Jesus uh, really face the reality of his own humanity, that as he's human, he has to resist uh, what Satan is throwing at him through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, becoming a prototype for us, how we are then to live as those who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And then uh, last week was kind of the big hinge week. I, I said last week is that the hinge, it really swings from the beginning of the book into the rest of the book, just like you go from the front side of the door to the back side of the door. Last week was that hinge that allowed us to move where Jesus made the pronouncement that the kingdom of God is here for those who are poor, those who are captive, those who are blind, and that he's going to come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's the big idea in this section is that we're going to see Jesus constantly go back and forth to show what the kingdom of God is like. To say that you have an idea of what the kingdom of God actually is, but the kingdom of God is actually what I'm going to demonstrate to you. And as we get started, I wanted to ask you a question. Has there been a time in your life where you have felt completely and utterly powerless? I mean, it could have been you've lost your job and you have no savings and you have no idea what to do. Um, could be when tragedies hit your doorstep. You find out that there's cancer in the home or that there's a long-lost relative who just developed a sickness that you had no clue about. And all of a sudden, the, the, the feeling of powerlessness shows up because you can't do anything. Could have been you've been in a car accident. And after a car accident, in that wreck, you, you're, you're stuck. You, you don't know what to do. And that sense of helplessness comes through. 
maybe for those of you who have adult children and you're watching your children make these decisions that you internally just can't agree with and you feel powerless to be able to step in and say something. For me, um, probably the time that I felt the most powerless was uh, actually when Paisley was born. Um, uh, everything was going fine, and then after Nadia delivered Paisley, um, she was blue. She was floppy, and she wasn't responding to anything. So as a parent, you're just waiting for that cry, right? You're waiting for the, the clearing of the fluid and just able to, to scream, and, and then you know your baby's healthy. And in that moment, there's this sense of fear that I can't do anything. I can't do anything to help my kid. And um, she's blue and APGAR scores, if you know what that is, incredibly low, how they're responding to sensory stuff. And it was, it was really hard. And then um, I'm in shock. I, I just don't know what to do. It's supposed to be an exciting moment that your baby's born. And then when Paisley was born, we, we couldn't do anything uh, about it. Felt incredibly, incredibly helpless. In that moment of helplessness for you, has there been someone who came in who had power to change your situation? Whether you're in that car accident and the fireman shows up with the jaws of life and you're able to get out, or whether it's a doctor saying, we have some medicine that's going to help this diagnosis, or whether it's your children coming back saying, hey, I need you to talk to me about this issue in my life, giving the opportunity for you to then have that voice again. For me, it was the, the OBGYN and the NICU team. When the NICU team rushed in and our doctor was trying to get Paisley to respond to anything, those were the people that saved my daughter's life. Those were the people that came in and had the power to do what I could not do in that moment. And as we look in today's text, Jesus comes in, into three encounters, two with individuals and one with the group, where they are powerless to change their situation. There's no hope for them. There's no change coming. But then a powerful person like Jesus shows up and changes their reality. Let's jump in. Verse 31, chapter 4. If you have your Bibles or your Bible on your phone, feel free to flip on there. And this is how it starts. Luke 4, 31. And when he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, he, he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he had cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with what authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place and into the surrounding region. And as we go through the next couple of stories, we're going to see that this is a 24-hour day in the life of Jesus. This happens in the morning. This happens when synagogue starts, kind of like here in this place, where you're coming for a gathering of God's people. This is Jesus showing up for a typical gathering of God's people in the synagogue. So he shows up, and uh, Jesus most likely would have probably read the same exact thing that he read in Nazareth uh, that he would read in Capernaum. Where he's coming, and the scroll gets handed to him, and he flips it to Isaiah 61 again and says, The Spirit of God has anointed me for the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And though it didn't go well in Nazareth, as we saw last week, um, it seems like people here are astonished. They see Jesus teaching, and they know 
that something is different about what he's saying and why he's saying it. And it's clear that Jesus is unlike any other rabbi who shows up and just reads the scroll. You know the difference when, when there's someone who's teaching the Word of God and you sense the power of the Holy Spirit upon them versus someone who's getting up and just reads the Word. We've all been in those situations. And Jesus is one of those who shows up in power. And when he reads the Word of God, people listen. People respond. So they're in this typical Sabbath moment where the rabbi hands him the scroll. He reads and men are discussing what's going on. And then it goes from this typical Sabbath to a very unconventional one. This man who has a demon shows up and, and literally blurts out something. Some texts say the word ha. Other texts say let this be like he's trying to, to pronounce something of what's going to come. And what he says is rather interesting. He recognizes Jesus as who he is. He recognizes Jesus as the one, first off, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And remember what Jesus said in Nazareth last, last week, that he's coming to proclaim the kingdom of God, that he's coming to say the captives are going to be set free, the poor are going to be brought into a state of community where they can have their needs met and taken care of. Those who are outcasts are brought back into the community. He, and what does the demon do? He then questions Jesus. He says, are you coming to destroy us? So these demons know that at some point in time, there's going to be a day when Jesus comes in power and destroys all of the cosmic works of evil. And so he says, is now the time, Jesus? Have you shown up because now you're going to bring your judgment upon us? And then this demon tells everyone the, the true identity of Jesus. He said, you're the Holy One of God. And so then the demon tries to declare in front of all that this is who Jesus is. If I were Jesus in that moment... I would say, all of what you said is correct. Absolutely. I am the Holy One of God. I am from Nazareth, who is coming in power, and I will come to destroy you. But Jesus says none of that, which makes this incredibly fascinating. What does Jesus do? He tells the demon to shut up. He says, stop talking. And when he does that, this, the, the demon throws the man down, and the, man comes, or the demon comes out of the man. And this is a very purposeful thing that Jesus is doing. When it comes to people identifying who Jesus is, Jesus is the one who's going to call the shots, no one else. In a lot of ways, there are Messiah figures that have shown up all throughout Jerusalem at this time. Oftentimes, these Messiah-type figures <clears throat> were those zealots. You know, oftentimes, those zealots were those who would come and try to overthrow Rome by a political power through the means of force. So what this demon is actually doing, he's not trying to proclaim Jesus to be who Jesus says he is. The demon is trying to distract the people and say, oh, maybe Jesus is just like some of these other messiahs who's going to come in and violently take over Rome. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, shut up. This is not your time. This is my time. And I'm coming to tell you who I am. No one's going to call the thoughts about who he is except Jesus himself. They say, guys, I'm going to reveal who I am in my moments because there's a right time and a right place. And right now, What's happening is wrong, and you demon come out. So how does the demon respond? He doesn't even have an option. That's what I love. There's no option. The demon responds to the voice of Jesus because it's the very voice that made him. It's the very voice that shows up and says, look, you have no power here. You have no authority here. 
So not only do the, do the crowds in the temple, or in the synagogue rather, recognize that Jesus has authority, but now they see it. It's the demonstration on display. There's a point in time where if I were to imagine the scene, I think of the synagogue, and I think of when people hear somebody speak with awe. For me, if I were them, my mouth would just be open. Like, oh my gosh, what are you saying? This is amazing. But then at this point in time, I feel like the jaw is now hitting the floor. It goes from this place of, wait, you said you had power, and oh my gosh, you have authority. One like I've never seen. So the tweet got out, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. Hashtag YOLO. Hashtag, we're getting this done. You know, word of mouth, is this, this story is now developing. Social media is going out. Everybody's talking and they're saying, hey, Jesus is something else. Not only does he say something powerful, he demonstrates something powerful. And you see, this, this, is, this is the good news for the demon-possessed man. Because I think for us, and especially me, when I read this text, what I see is the demon and I don't see the man. I see the demon and what the demon's trying to do to this man, but I forget that there's a man who's held captive, who has someone else literally in control. I was with um, Chuck and Luke and Justin, all the Colossae leads, this past weekend down in Santa Cruz. And if you've ever been to Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz is nuts. Like, Portland is weird, but Santa Cruz is also incredibly, incredibly weird. But there's, there's guys just walking around, and they're clueless. And I have no idea whether it's mental illness. I have no idea whether it's demonic. I have no idea whether there's med stuff going on. But what I saw is I just saw people captive to something. And it's like they're a shell of a human. And this is exactly who this man was. And because of his demon possession, what happened? He's an outcast. He's out of the way in society. So when he gets the demon hit out of him and he comes back up, He's, he's full again. He's in his right mind again. He's brought back to the right state again. And in this first encounter, when Jesus meets this demon-possessed man, what does he proclaim he's going to do? He's going to come and he's going to bring good news to set the captives free. And his first note in that is that he's setting the captive free by setting this demon-possessed man free so he would be a man full again. The beauty of Luke is that Luke moves from one thing to the next, very much like Mark's gospel. So we see this one story, and then all of a sudden Luke takes us into a second. So follow this in verse 38 with me. And he arose and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve him. So when the news of Jesus, the social media is coming around, hey, Jesus is coming into town, what Jesus is doing next is he's going to the house of one of his going-to-be disciples. This is before the calling of the disciples, but Jesus shows up to Simon Peter's house to his mother-in-law. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes. He walks into a small room. There's a woman who's lying in bed sweating out of fever. She can't get comfortable. She's restless she's just trying to feel good but yet for them fever was a life-threatening thing for us we just think it's a fever you take some antibiotics you sleep it off you sweat it off you're fine but we have to remember that this woman is in her elderly age she is sick and this could be something that kills her 
So for them, they, they thought it was a major deal because who do they go to? They say, Jesus, Jesus, you got to step in here. I need you to step in. I need you to heal. I need you to save. I need you to bring help right now. So during that appeal, Jesus walks over to Simon Peter's mother-in-law, stands over her, rebukes the fever, and it's gone. It's an interesting thing to note that Jesus doesn't just lay hands on her and heals her. He rebukes the fever. Turns out it's the same exact word that he uses to rebuke the demon. It's the same powerful word that he uses. So what this means for us as we look into a text like this is when Jesus uses the same word to rebuke demons and also to rebuke a fever, in this instance, it seems to be that there's some demonic association that leads to a sickness like this. And this is not to say that sickness is because of demonic association. Like, we can't take our kids to a play place, then all of a sudden they get fever the next few days and go, Satan did it. Like, that's not the issue. We didn't wash the hands well, or just somebody brought some sickness. But in this instance, it seems to be that some form of sickness actually can be caused by demonic association. It's, it's interesting, because there's other passages as well in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm, he uses the same exact word. He doesn't just say, peace be still. In a sense, he's rebuking the storm again. And that would make sense in the storyline of Mark, because after Mark 4, going into Mark 5, it's the first time that the Gentiles are going to hear the good news of the gospel for the poor. So what do demons try to do? They try to stop the activity of the kingdom of God. That's what they're accomplishing and what they're trying to move forward with. So in this sense, you have some, another form of captivity where Simon's mother-in-law has this fever and Jesus brings healing to, again, show the demonstration of his power and authority over the demonic realm. And this time, it goes from the demonic realm to the molecular biological level. That's a huge span. And what does Simon Peter's mother, mother-in-law do? Gets up and serves. Doesn't get up and nag, gets up and serves. That's what happens. And it's fantastic to watch. The, the finger doesn't linger. There's not a cough that just keeps going on. She gets up and she's whole again. Some of us can be thinking, but she, Steve, she's not in captivity. She was sick. You know, how does sickness make you a captive? What made the mother-in-law captive more than anything else is that most likely she was a widow. And a widow in that culture was a social outcast. If you were a woman and your husband died, unless you had, whether it be an, a, a brother of the husband or a son in your family to take care of you, you would be destitute. Women were considered as property in this time, not as human. And because of that, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is in a captive social state. And now she's even more captive by this fever. So just like last week, right, when Luke was saying that Jesus went, uh, just like Elijah and Elisha, that he was going to those that Israel didn't expect, he does it again here. He goes to the widow. He goes to the one who's the outcast of society. So not only is now Jesus healing the woman, in a lot of ways, which was not pleasurable. He's also now healing the widow, the one whose society has kicked to the curb if it wasn't for Simon Peter. 
And then look what happens next in verse 40 as Luke closes Jesus' day. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, or all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of the man crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So it's now, it's now nearing a crazy end of a day for Jesus. It starts off in the synagogue where he heals a demonic man. It moves to Simon Peter's mother-in-law and heals of a fever. And then now the word has gotten out. Any and all are bringing people to Jesus so that sicknesses can be healed and demons could be casted out. This is a, a gospel demonstration that you, you see in the very beginning where these healings were taking place inside the walls of a home or inside the walls of the synagogue. And now Jesus is taking it to the streets and saying, no, my kingdom is not going to be just shown in a house. It's going to be shown publicly outside for the world to see. Essentially, it's, it's God through, the, through Luke saying this, that there's no thing that can stop the power and the authority of God. It can happen inside the walls. It can happen outside the walls. But Jesus is coming. There's no location off limits that his authoritative power is going to be expressed and displayed. So, and, and here's what's fascinating, is that he comes and he sets his own agenda again. More and more people are coming and more and more are showing up with sicknesses that need to be released from captivity by demons who need to be released back into whole humanity again. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the demons again. He says, guys, you are not the one that sets the tone here. You do not have the authority or the power to say who I am because now is not yet the right time. So after all the Disneyland crowds subside and they all get back to their homes, and back after a crazy day of ministry where Jesus is healing and showing his authority over all things. Luke ends this section in verse 42. And when it was day the next morning, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So just notice the toll that that last 24 hours took on Jesus. Think of your longest day. You're at work at 6.30, you're home, and then you have to be present for your wife and your kids, gentlemen. It's a long day, but you've got to be present for that. Add demon casting out and healing people of fevers, and that's the level of Jesus, where he's, he's had a crazy, crazy day. So what does he need to do? He needs to go back to do what happened in Luke 4. He needs to go back, be alone, get away from it. Why? Not for the sake of being alone, but for the sake of being with his father. He needs that recalibration after this crazy day of ministry. He needs that time. So if you're Jesus and you have a crazy day, what do you need to do? You need to recalibrate. But if you're the crowds, you have another desired outcome. You want Jesus to come back and be magic man again. Okay, Jesus, you've done so much. You can't go anywhere else. You need to stay here. You need to keep doing what you're doing. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, I can't. I must continue to preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. For this was the reason why I was sent. They try to prevent him. 
you can't go. And he says, no, guys, I have to. There's no other reason why I was sent but for this very purpose. So when Jesus came and they heard this, they let him go. And he went back out to do the very thing he said he was going to do. There's others who need to hear the good news, that there's liberty for if you're in captivity. There are those who are oppressed and need the justice of God to show up. There's sight for those who are in blindness. There's power for those who are powerless. Jesus is saying that narrative again and again, so I've got to keep going. My itinerant, moving ministry has to keep going because there's more who are locked up in bondage. And it's at this point that the text hits our world. It's at this point where the text of Scripture and the narrative of our own lives intersect. And this is what's truly beautiful about the Bible. It doesn't just speak to that first century audience. It speaks to us in our reality. So we see Jesus, who's healing a demon, or healing a demon-possessed man, rather, healing a fever-ridden woman, a widow. And then he continues to do that again and again and again. And this is where we connect. So here's what I want to share with us today. Two closing thoughts from a text like this. First is this. Where we feel powerless in our own captivity, Jesus is powerful to set us free. Many of you feel daily what I felt when Paisley was born. This sense of, I am powerless to do anything. It could be that you're captive to an addiction. Drunkenness, gluttony, lust, pride for more, whatever it may be. You feel powerless over it. It controls you rather than you controlling it. It doesn't matter how many times you've tried to stop. It doesn't matter how many times you've asked for forgiveness. But whatever addictive behavior that's there, it's, you're powerless to it. It could be that you're captive to your past. For some reason, whatever you do, you cannot get out of, the, out of your mind the pain that you've caused other people or the pain that other people have caused you. And you cannot, for whatever reason, move on from that past. It defines you, it tells you who you are, and you live in that narrative no matter how hard you push back. Maybe you're captive to a trajectory where things are going well for you. That happened to Israel all, 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 the, all the time. And with Israel, when things went well, they forgot about God. God, give me enough that I would know who you are, but God, don't give me less to where I hate you. That's what David said in the Proverbs. God, I need you to provide for me, but I don't need you to let me be in poverty. I can't handle I need you to be in that space where you can be God over my life. But maybe you're moving upward and you're moving onward and the rat race is killing your health. It's killing your family. It's killing your kids. You, you have nothing left to give because you push for bigger, better, faster, stronger. I think that's a rap song somewhere. I think it's there. But you're, you're killing yourself. You're going for your family. Here's the good news that we need to hear. That Jesus' authority extends not only to the cosmic level of demonic realm but to the biological level of a fever. And anywhere in between, Jesus is authoritative over our world. And his authority to release us is good news for us today. And here's why you and I need to hear this. When we look at that announcement in Luke 4, when Jesus came, comes to bring freedom for the captive and sight for those who are blind, and, and, and justice for those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
I would bet money on it that you and I go, that's not me. Sherwood is the second wealthiest county in Washington County. We're not the poor. We, we live in a free country. I'm, I'm not captive to anything. I'm an educated individual. I'm, I'm not blind. I see things. I have certain inalienable rights, the Constitution says in this country. There's, there's no one to oppress me. And things are going pretty great right now. Why in the world do I need the year of the Lord's favor? If you and I believe that, then we are simply false. Because here's the reality. You are enslaved to you. If there's anything in our culture that we have to look at this text and say, what are we captive to? You're captive to you. You're captive because at the end of the day, you're self-sufficient. You don't need God. And what do you do? You tell that lie to yourself again and again and again. And I tell that lie to myself again and again and again. The beauty of this passage is that there's hope for you. And there's hope for me. That Jesus can set us free from our own self-focus. That at the end of the day, we don't have to look out for number one. We have a God who actually looks out for us and cares for us in a cosmic way that we can't even understand. When I had, when Everett was born, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says that God delights in his children and sings a song over them. I learned that when Everett was born because then when I was humming him to sleep, there's this moment where I'm like, that's the father. That's the father over my life. All of my fears, all of my worries, all of my sins, God is over that. And the good news today is that you don't have to work harder. You don't have to try more. You don't have to be that rap song. What you can do is you can lean into the gospel. That you can never be more loved than you are in this moment, regardless of what's going on in your head, your heart, or your reality. And you and I are those very captives. We titled this series, Release the Captive. Why? Because you and I are a part of that group. The good news for us in a, in a wealthier community like this is that when you're enslaved to your life, Jesus shows up and will break the chains and break you out of your selfish existence. And that's the best news that we need to hear. And here's the reason why, because it, it, it moves us to a place of humility where we can agree with Jesus. Jesus, you're right. When my head hits the pillow at night, I think of all these anxieties about who? Me and my life. And God, I'm not living in faith. And what does God do? He doesn't slap you upside the head like you're a horrible son or daughter. He comes alongside you and says, yes, I know. I know that your anxieties are there, but I want you to live the abundant life that's present for you. One where you know that I'm your father and that I'm after your good. 